Listeners, before we dive into our show today, I want to share something truly enlightening with you. A cozy spot in Midtown Toronto where the future of wellness isn't a pill or a potion, but something as simple and pure as light. I'm talking about the Toronto Light Therapy Clinic. And the best part is it's owned by an alumnus. And this is not just any clinic. We're talking about two fully furnished treatment rooms, each one a little oasis of calm right in the heart of the city. Imagine stepping into this space, ready to experience the transformative power of red light and infrared light therapy. They've got the latest gear to make sure you're getting the full body treatment. You didn't even know you needed. And the team is top notch. The certified staff at the clinic are committed to tailoring a wellness journey just for you, starting with a complimentary consultation. Whether you're seeking to rejuvenate your body, enhance your health, or simply bask in the glow of light therapy, they're there to guide you every step of the way. Remember, your comfort and transformation are their top priorities. I know it was when I was there. So visit torontolighttherapy.ca to book your session or learn more about their services. So why not embrace the radiant path to well-being? Give it a try, and I promise you'll see the light. Hi, my name is Alicia K. Harris, and I went to Newman from 2007 to 2011. My favorite subject at school was stage band, and my favorite memory was the stage band Christmas concert. Hello, Newman. Tell the world my story. You're bluffing. Listeners, I think you know what we do here by now, but if you've forgotten or you're tuning in for the very first time, here's a reminder. We do interviews with people in our community to keep you up on all things Newman, to keep us all connected. Today's very special guest has become one of the most exciting directors in the country. She attended Newman not too long ago, but since leaving these hallowed halls, she has gone on to complete a degree at Ryerson in Image Arts, and her films have won multiple awards. We are excited to see what else she has in store, but especially excited to speak to her about her craft, her latest projects, and much, much more. Please welcome the incredibly talented Alicia K. Harris. Welcome to the Bluff, Alicia. Thanks for having me. So exciting. You look well. You you haven't aged a day. Does your youthful appearance ever come into play in your line of work being a director? Well, uh, people always seem to think I'm like, I, I'll be on set introducing myself to the actors. They're like, what are you here doing today? I'm like, oh, I'm the director. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's fun. Just to give the listeners a bit of background, we were actually just sort of kibitzing before the interview started, and we both realized that we taught at Cedar Ridge Creative Center, and we were both video instructors. You were a video instructor there. I was the video instructor for two years, and then I was the camp coordinator for two years. Another former graduate of ours at Newman, Joe Lynch, was the camp coordinator there, and before that, he was also the video instructor there. So, a pretty small world. Joe was actually my video instructor when I went there one summer as a kid. So, but the Newman connection. So I guess, you know, you and Joe were working together and then Joe and I had just like figured out that we both went to Newman randomly. It came up. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I want to ask you just about your career now. Has, has the pandemic affected the film industry at all? 
the film industry is still pretty much full speed ahead. So um, it's been very strange. It's a, obviously such a lucrative industry. Um, they can afford to like on a TV show, for example, they'll have their own testing center in the show and test everybody three days a week. They can still afford to just shut it down and come back in two weeks kind of thing. And then I've been on shorter projects where it's like you shoot a day. So, it, you know, even if we, we would get tested before, but it's like a one day thing. So, I mean, most of the things I've done have actually been done during the pandemic. It's kind of wild. I'd like to go right back to the start if I can. After leaving Newman, you attended Ryerson. And then soon after that, you got into your career in film. But when did that all start for you, your love of film? Um, I mean, for me, film really started from like a love of storytelling from a young age. So I, and I guess creative expression as a whole, the combination of the two, I was always really interested. First, it was drawing, then it was music. And that still is a big part of my love and interest. <laughs> um, and eventually, um, actually at Newman, I did drama class and I also directed a couple of plays. And that was like the first time that I really was a director. Like me and my sister had also made little videos. Like we would reenact SNL sketches and record them. And it was like funny and fun, but it wasn't until I got to direct plays that I saw what it was like when all of the art forms come together to create a giant work of art. And to me, mm -hmm. that's um, what film is. It's like all of the arts coming together, um, which I really liked. And then by the time I got to Ryerson, that was when I really made my first like film films. And can I, can I dig a little deeper here? I want to know your experiences at Ryerson. How did they prepare you for life in the director's chair? It was really exciting. It, that period of time was really where I found my voice as a director because I was always like a good student and motivated, but it was a chance for me to actually make things with the resources that we had and with a team of people. And it was my chance to make my first big films. And then the rest was history. I was like, okay, I guess I'm meant to do this because um, I'm pretty good at this and I like it. <laughs> so yeah, it all kind of started with just a love of the arts in general, specifically music that led later into deciding I wanted to tell stories through moving images. What type of classes did you take at Ryerson? Um, the film program consists of half theory, half production. So we would take things like literally a class called concepts and theories, which was, I don't, it was just showing us the weirdest films and art concepts, I guess, to like keep us creative and thinking as artists. And then we would take things that were more practical, like here's the tech class where you learn how to use the camera and you learn how to use like film equipment and stuff. And then on the other side, cause it was university. I also had to take electives. So for all of my electives, I took philosophy classes and I actually won the philosophy award at Newman. Um, shout out to Mancino for that. And yeah, so I mean, that also really plays into like me wanting to be an artist. Like I always just had a different perspective of the world and wanted to share that. And um, yeah, I think my films all do have a deeper meaning and a deeper message behind them. So um, yeah, those are the classes I took.
So Alicia, I've always been interested in the different processes of artists. Um, that process from ideation to the realization of the idea in something tangible and accessible for people. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your process? So for example, your film Love Stinks. How did this project go from an idea to an award-winning student film? Um, honestly, I, the best way I can describe it is I make the movies that I wish I saw as a child. And this movie first started off as me kind of, I think, thinking about characters I had seen in films. Like I initially was like, oh my gosh, I want to do an eighties piece. It's going to be these three guys. They're going to like steal this like porno magazine. And then they're going to, um, you know, it's going to be this oh like adventure movie kind of thing, like circa the rest of those 80s movies that were like that. And then as I thought more and more about um, the sexism that exists in the film industry and had an awakening in my third year of school, realizing that all of my favorite movies were about guys and men and I was like wait a minute wait a minute where are all the movies about us <laughs> so it was actually a really big transformation for me because this is something that like I'm sure everybody experiences but until you are actually conscious of what you are consuming it's not actually obvious right. and once I had realized wait a minute I've not really seen myself represented in film in, in so many ways. I mean, I would say there's more representation now, but this was like, I don't know, eight years ago. Um, I was like, well, I got to make these stories then. Like, what am I doing writing films that I've already seen and characters I've already seen? Like, I want to write my own story. So I ended up writing a coming of age story about these three girls who find this Playgirl magazine. And I wrote kind of just like the girl version of what these stories are which is like you know it's basically a movie of these girls talking in a bedroom and I'm like this is exactly what we do <laughs> like maybe we're not doing it in this other very cinematic way that I've already seen portrayed in film five million times um I just wrote my own honest experience obviously it's like a little more zany and you know I took creative license and I said it in the 80s because I thought it would be fun but I mean it all I basically am all of the characters like I wrote you know, myself and all of the characters. And some of it was inspired by my elementary school friends. And yeah, I mean, my process is pretty much just drawing from my own life and then crafting it into a story that I think, um, I don't actually really think about what other people will think about it. I really just think like, would I like this story? Because I'm my target audience. And the more specific you make a story, the more universal it ends up becoming and when we were making this film and fundraising for it, people were just so excited to see what was going to happen with these three girls. And I was like, yeah, I'm excited too, because I haven't seen this. So yeah, it all just comes from my personal life. Even though I change things, it's still rooted in some kind of truth and memory. Well, there's a real authenticity to your work and you can tell that you draw significantly from your own, um, your own experiences. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't this film win an award as well? Yeah, so we we ended up licensing it to CBC, which is cool. So it lived on their website um, for a few years. And then we won, well, we won all of our school's awards also at the end of the year, Best Film, Best Director, People's Choice. And then we won um, a couple of awards from festivals. Um, 
yeah, it was really exciting. And I don't know, the gym might look familiar to some viewers. Um, it was shot at Newman. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I didn't even really realize how much Newman was still in my life until we're like talking about it now. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like thanks to Miss Blay and Miss Chernow at the time, like making that happen. Um, yeah. So it is online people. If you want to watch it, it's on my website, um, alishakaris.com and you can see the Newman gym looking all great in the background of the film. Well, there you have it, folks. AliciaKHarris.com to find a selection of her films if you're interested, and you should be interested because they are amazing. Stay tuned for more with Alicia K. Harris after a short break. The Bluff Podcast is produced and recorded for St. John Henry Newman Catholic Secondary School in Scarborough. I would argue there's another reason why hair matters differently for women of color, because we're not just biased towards the natural texture of Afro hair, but we have also formed usually negative stereotypes around hairstyles that are particularly suitable and less damaging to natural Afro-textured hair. I want to name two. The first hairstyle is the Afro, which some of you may remember from women like Angela Davis fighting for the rights of women of color in the 1960s and 1970s. Because of its history, the Afro for some of us is a political statement, a reminder of the US civil rights movement and people of color struggle for recognition. For others, the Afro is a fashion statement, a cool, hip and trendy style. And so what do you see when you see a woman of color with an Afro? Do you see an activist, a troublemaker, a radical black feminist maybe? Or do you see a woman interested in fashion, enjoying and expressing herself through her hair? Do you see both? And more importantly, to what extent are your impressions of her going to shape the way that you will interact with her? That clip comes from a TED Talk called The Psychology of Black Hair, and I chose it because it's especially relevant to this question here. Your film pick deals with one of the most important of contemporary themes in film and art over the last 10 years, and that theme is encountering the other or otherness. Why did you decide to focus on this theme, and and what impact do you hope that this has on the audience? I decided to focus on this specific topic, which is this girl uh, wearing her afro to school and dealing with everybody else's microaggressions throughout the day. Um, simply because it was my own story. Like I didn't have this exact situation happen to me, but it was inspired by many events in my life as a child and as an adult where people had made me feel like my differences were negative, specifically about my hair. And again, I just kind of felt like, wow, every black woman I know has a story about their hair, but I still haven't seen an honest story with heart and portraying reality of like what this means to us. So I really just wanted to share my own personal experience in in doing that, sharing like what other black women go through. But the film really serves as an educational tool because I think not that I'm making up excuses for others. um, There is just like a level of ignorance that people have when they're not thoughtfully (laughs) thinking about how their words might affect people. And 
one thing I've really noticed from the response of the film is many people say to me, oh, wow, I didn't even realize like this was a thing. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but um, I think it's not always that people are malicious um, when they're making comments or like reaching out to touch my hair. But at the same time, like that doesn't give people an excuse. And I think it's really harmful when young girls are growing up with young black girls are growing up with this idea that if you wear your hair in specific ways, people are going to treat you differently, which is not fair. It continues into workplaces. And when I was making the film, I read so many stories about young girl gets sent home for wearing her hair this way to school. Woman gets fired for having an Afro. And I just wanted to tell a story that would shed light on this in hopes that people can be more aware of how negative this is. This film could have incredible applications in in a classroom, in in any type of school setting, especially in the secondary level. Are there any plans for this to be more widely uh, circulated in schools? Yeah, I'm actually partnered with this organization called Real Canada. So they, um, if you reach out to them or me, um, they'll, they'll connect you to get to present the film in schools. Basically, they're an organization that presents films in schools. Um, And I'm also one of my long term goals is to make a teaching guide to go with the film um, that can just exist without me, Um, because ultimately I want the film to teach about empathy. And, you know, I like that you use the word otherness, Um, like we're all other, we're all different from each other, but not everybody is made to feel that way. Um, So I definitely want to create a teaching guide with it. But as of right now, the way it is being screened in schools, and that was a big priority for me when I wrote the story. As a society, we often talk about, you know, a film being successful. But how do you, the artist, how do you measure the success of a film? Because society has its own way. Box office and streaming revenue, the amount of awards that a film is nominated for or that a film wins... And those are pretty solid metrics. But for you, the director, for you, the artist, when do you know that a film is a success? Um, Well, I have two answers. Um, The first is that the set was a success. Um, I think a lot of, honestly, film sets are stressful. Like they're known for being stressful, almost toxic environments. And we hear about these older male directors who like did all these abusive, terrifying tactics, but oh, but they're a genius. That's just how they work, this, that, or whatever. And it's like very accepted in film to be a toxic environment. And I obviously do not believe in that or subscribe to that. And I'm not trying to have that be how my sets operate. So I'm not an ends justify the means person. So if our set is filled with, you know, many different perspectives of many different cultures. And we make our peace with like love and care. And it's not, you know, everybody's stress is not seeping everywhere. It's just like an environment that is positive. Then that is already one piece of the success because as an artist, when my film is done, everybody else gets the film, but I get the experience of making it. And obviously I also get the experience of presenting it, but that is a really big part of it for me. So if we've had a a set that was kind and nice, um, then that's the film is successful. Um, And then, I mean, back, if you would have asked me this question back when I was graduating Ryerson and I was still like really trying to figure out 
what my life in this career was going to be, I would have said, oh, success is like playing TIFF and doing this and doing that and getting this award. Um, but as I didn't do those things, I just realized I couldn't, it just didn't make sense to me because there were some things that I got and some things that I didn't get. And I was happy for what I got and it happened at the right time. So now to me, success is simply just did people like the film? <laughs> because whatever film festival I play in, whether it's a big film festival or a small one, there's always people that come up to me after, you know, when screenings were allowed back in the day, um, you know, there would be a lineup of people waiting to say, I really liked your film. And at the end of the day, that is all I want. I just want people to like the movie and that's a success to me. And if I win an award, that just means a group of people like the movie. So I'm not going to value that higher than, you know, just an audience member coming up to me saying, oh, wow, this reminded me of my childhood. This, I really related to this. I learned something that's equally as important to me. So yeah, basically one, <laughs> was the set a good environment? And two, like, do people like the movie? And did it mean something to somebody? Did they learn something? Were they inspired? Is how I know my films are successful. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Bluff 416 or check us out on Facebook at The Bluff Podcast. Keeping alumni, current staff and students connected to life on the bluff. Well, Alicia, we're approaching the end of our episode today, but I was wondering if you could just let us in on maybe what comes next for you. Are there any projects in the pipeline that uh, you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Um, well, I directed my first TV show episode, which is on this show called Amelia Parker, and it's going to be on Super Channel. I believe it was just announced at some point. Um, but I mean, I'm always doing a million things. <laughs> I have another film coming out. I'm shooting. These are all shorts. Another film this summer. I have a documentary in development about racism and Canadian healthcare. Um, I'm doing a bunch of things. Long-term goals are, I'm going to do a feature, you know, I do hope to do studio features. Like I do want my work to, to reach larger audiences. Um, so those are all things that I am planning for the future. But right now, honestly, I feel like with COVID times, I have really reflected on what else am I doing? <laughs> because I have made it pretty far in my career because I've dedicated a lot of time and effort and work into it. And at the beginning of quarantine, when all of my film events got canceled, it really made me reflect on what am I developing? How am I developing as a person? So I do have a lot of other goals that I'm working on. Like I'm learning French, I'm learning piano. I'm kind of just doing all of these other things that, um, are fun. And I just want to remind anybody listening that, especially if you go into something like the arts, I did really hustle. Like I dedicated so much time to getting to where I am today in my career, but you know, it's important to just have fun along the way. So I'm just also trying to have fun and have other goals. And that's what I wish for anyone who decides to go into this too. Um, because it can be an all consuming life, but it doesn't have to be. I think that is some very sage advice from somebody who's right in that world. Um, Alicia, thank you for sitting down and chatting with us today. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Um, it, it was actually really nice to just take a moment to reflect on how much 
Newman has done for me and how really like that time makes you who you are. And I want to just give a special shout out to Mr. Maroney, who uh, has the nickname My Life Coach for a reason. He was always there for me, believing in me along the way. And if I didn't have him as like my literally my life coach when I was at Newman, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have believed in myself as much as I did. So shout out to you, Maroney. I know you're listening. And listeners, remember to tune in each week. We only have three episodes left before the end of this season. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the Bluff 416. Goodbye for now.